Hooray Run podcast episode 24. Alyssa Gadeski joins me, James Rogers, in conversation for this one. Alyssa set the fastest known time, FKT, on the Vermont Long Trail in the summer. 273 miles, completed in five days, two hours. She set the FKT. We get some sweet stories from the trail. Talk about her process leading up to the attempt. Just what it takes to complete an endeavor like this. Slim Jims, Taco Bell, Swedish Fish, just to name a few items in her diet for this attempt. Also talk about her career leading up to the Vermont Long Trail. And you're going to enjoy a lot of this. A lot of great insight from Alyssa. It's a fulfilling conversation. Going to depth on that Long Trail attempt and then some before we get to the conversation, as always, my friend Mikey, a.k.a. Meeks Palmer on SoundCloud. Mikey says, leave a five-star review. Leave a review for this podcast. Five stars is awesome. Really appreciate that. Tell a friend, recommend. Oh yeah, and Mikey, you gotta drop that beat for us. It's 11.05 a.m. Eastern. Alyssa, have you gotten a run in yet today? <laughs> Hi, James. You know, I actually haven't. I'm racing a half Ironman this weekend. So today is a rest day before the, the race weekend. And so it's one of those rare days when I haven't gotten a run in, which is ironic, too, because on the East Coast, it's almost 60 degrees and sunny. So <laughs> a little is bit of a really? bummer there. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. At least in Virginia, it is. I, I guess I can't speak for the whole coast. Are you based in Charlottesville? I am, yes. Okay, give me a little bit of the climate there then, year round. Yeah, you know, I mean, I picked Charlottesville because partly because of the climate. The summers can get quite hot and humid. I tend to like that sort of thing, so it doesn't really bother me too much. But that's that's usually what most people would complain about around here, because um, we don't have terrible winters to complain about at all. I think, you know, we'll get a blizzard every handful of years or something like that, and even then, the snow sticks around for a week, maybe two weeks if it's really bad. But I I can actually ride my bike even outside pretty much year round. So you got to have some cold weather gear, certainly, but it's it's pretty mild here. Have you been in Virginia for a while now? Is that where you grew up? No. So I actually, nearby, I grew up outside of Annapolis, Maryland. And then I did my last two years of undergrad at UVA. Mm-hmm. And so I saw Charlottesville then and I knew I wanted to return. And it was about five years before, you know, between graduation and, and kind of my return um, back here to Charlottesville. And so, uh, but the climate, I've always been kind of a mid-Atlantic um, mid-Atlantic person. Okay. Gotcha. Now I do want to focus a lot on your Vermont long trail FKT. I saw the headline runner's world this past week and shot you the email, get this conversation going here, but you are a professional triathlete. So run, bike, swim, you're doing a half Ironman you said this weekend. Yes. So yeah, professional triathlete is, is, still my main gig, but my, you know, I started with trail running and ultra running. So I I find ways to still mix that in as much as I can. Did you run in college at all? You know, I didn't. (laughs) Um, and I grew up playing soccer. 
And so, you know, I was a team sports kid for the most part growing up. And then my dad would run the local 5Ks, 10Ks, and even the 10 miler kind of in Annapolis. And I don't, I was pretty young. I want to say I was like eight when he started me in the, you know, short, short ones with him. And then I just thought it was kind of a normal thing to do to hop into those types of races. So that, you know, the, the running specific was cultivated in that sense, but I, I definitely didn't have a formal run upbringing or training, um, by any means because of, you know, I was playing competitive soccer and that was dominating most of my time while I was growing up. Okay. Did you bike and swim quite a bit growing up or what initially got you into Ironman triathlon? Yeah, you know, I biked to and from the community pool a lot. Like I loved riding a bike. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But by no means was I a cyclist growing up or anything like that. I did just learn to ride a bike very young, which I think is probably a good skill to have. And then swimming, I did summer swim team. And so that was the extent. Again, it was it was good because early on, I think I got some of the basics for swimming mm-hmm. um, as a kid rather than having to learn that as an adult. But honestly, my older sister was the better of us between between the two of us at swimming. And so my parents kind of kept her more at swimming and then steered me into like soccer and things like that to keep us, you know, being competitive at different things. I guess they didn't want us to have to compete against each other too much growing up. So yeah. um, we kind of left the swimming to her and it's a it's a running joke now in my family that we wonder if she could beat me or I'm, I'm pretty sure now I think I could beat her in the pool, but they all seem to think she would still be able to beat me, which is hilarious. Um, do you have, sorry, do you have a, like a strong point and a weak point in an Ironman there? Triathlon is, is running your strong suit or would you say the swimmer bike is and what's your weakest point there? You know, I came into triathlon really during so during college I joined the the club triathlon team and I found it and then it was after college I started doing Ironman mostly just because I was ultra running and trail running and living in Baltimore City and so and this was 2008-ish time period and so you know the ultra boom hadn't really really happened quite yet um it was it was definitely starting and picking up but most of the trail races and ultra races and my, you know, friends I was running with were, you know, at least 10, if not 20 or 30 years older than I was at that point. So I turned to some road race running and a group in Baltimore city. And then some of those people were triathletes. And then that kind of, you know, I continued to do that with them. And that's how I kind of found Ironman because it honestly, it just, it was something to do with, people more my age. Um, and it was fun in that sense and it still had the endurance. And then, but I think because I didn't have, you know, a swim, bike or run sport specific background, none of those are necessarily a massive strength for me, but also none are really a huge weakness by any means. You know, I think I've worked on so much of my swim through the past, um, you know, eight years I've been doing triathlon seriously. And so, I've really brought that up to speed quite a bit. And then a lot of cycling is just, you know, not too many people have a real cycling competitive background. So mm-hmm. it's just a matter of kind of, you know, putting in work season over season. And again, I've managed to bring that up to, I would call, I would call it like an above average level. And so the good thing about triathlon is that typically it's the type of people who can 
be above average across the board with all three rather than needing a standout one um, that really can find success. And so I think the fact that, you know, while I didn't have, you know, formal training or really competitive college at one sport or the other, I think that kind of has helped me in a way. Um, And just having that endurance background, you know, endurance is almost another discipline of Ironman itself. And I, that was definitely a strong suit of mine going into it. How many Ironmans have you completed up to this point here? I've done 31 now. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Well-versed in that department. Ultra marathons then hitting the trails. Do you remember your first ultra marathon race? I do. So I was getting ready. So before I went to UVA, I did two years of undergrad at the Naval Academy and you are required to play a sport at the club level or, you know, the rec level if you're not playing a varsity sport at Navy. So I had been playing club lacrosse, but I was ready for something different. And so I approached the Navy marathon team. They actually have a a team that qualifies for Boston every year and then goes and runs Boston and they do some of the other major marathons and things like that. So Mm. I knew I enjoyed running. Um, I had never really run more than a 10 miler or something, um, in terms of a race. But I talked to some friends who were on the team and they said, you know, we had already run Chicago as our qualification for Boston to get me on the team. And so it was, it was later in October, I was talking to them and they said, but you know, we have a small group going to the JFK 50 miler Ah. next month. If you're, and if, if you just finish that, we'll take you on the team. (laughs) So (laughs) that's a big 50 miler. Yeah. And again, like, you know, in 2000 and let's see, that would have been 2006. So I think so. Um, at that point you could sign up for JFK, you know, (laughs) without question. And so three weeks before I was like, okay, I signed up. I, the next day I went out and I ran 16 miles. So, Mm. and I was like, Oh, you know, surely I can get through 50. Um, and I think just that just total naivety, like was really on my side. And I, you know, I definitely, I was fit, um, and in general, so it wasn't like, you know, totally outlandish for me to want to try it. I wasn't going couch to 50 mile in three weeks or anything like that, but, um, it, it certainly was different than anything I had been doing. Um, and JFK is a great race. I mean, I think if anyone picks that as their first ultra, it's just a really positive experience in general with the crowd support. I think the terrain there gives you a bit of everything and then it is pretty runnable, right? So Mm -hmm. you can kind of, you know, even when it gets hard because maybe you haven't put in the proper training, you can usually find a way to keep moving yourself forward at the pace you need to. So I got through it that day and like nine hours, maybe 15 minutes or something along that line. And I loved it. And I knew, I knew immediately, even though I could barely walk that that was, that was something I loved to do. 2006. That's when it was. Okay. Yeah. First ultra JFK 50. Yeah. Much tougher to get into that race these days. A lot of pro ultra runners eyeing that. And it's quite the experience from what I've seen on video. Have not been there. Have not run it, but yeah, did not know I that mean, was your first ultra. That's sweet. yeah. It's, it's pretty rare to get to run that kind of distance around. I, th- I mean, I feel like they have a thousand or more people, and then you know all the the crowd support to get in a a fifty mile race is also pretty unreal. So it's definitely a good pick for a first one if anyone's looking for that. 
Sure. I'm going to fast forward then to 2014 here when you became a professional triathlete, when you left your corporate job and moved to Charlottesville. Talk to talk about just the decision with that move there, going from corporate office there, working full-time, probably getting some good training outside of work hours, but just saying, I want to put all my hours into athletics and coaching. What was the, the basis behind that decision there? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in 2010 or so, I started working with my coach, Hillary Biscay, and it was maybe in the middle of that first season or after that first season that, you know, I really wanted to to go the distance kind of in triathlon and see how competitive I could be because I was looking at some of these races I was doing and I was like, you know, I feel like I'm only starting here and I think I could get as good as some of these professional women that I see racing out there. Mm-hmm. And so her and I made kind of a long-term plan and luckily for me, she was the best mentor I could have had at that point because she had just you know, gone through, she's seven years older than I am, but she had basically done what I wanted to do, you know, seven years prior, essentially. So she had taken herself um, into a full-time coach and professional athlete. And so she had a lot of just the ability to mentor me and be like, okay, start saving money, you know, like, Uh let's think about realistically, these are the things you can be thinking about, like, where you can be based out of, you know, like having a life that is going to be a little bit transient and making sure you're building things that way instead of, you know, piling on all these things that are going to be just kind of baggage when you want to leave it all. Right. Yeah. And so, and of course, on top of all that, she was like, and you're going to have to train really freaking hard, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so I, we were, I mean, we, I wanted to put in the training that was going to help me reach my highest potential. And so I love high volume training and I respond very well to high volume training. And so it was a difficult juggle to have, you know, 20 to 30 hour training weeks and also doing a job that was, you know, at minimum 40 hours a week, it could Mm -hmm. have been 50 or 60 hours a week, some weeks. And in the end, I was actually working at a job for AOL that I loved. I loved my coworkers. I really liked the job and I thought it was a great, you know, if I was going to be in the corporate world, that was the place I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. But I just, I knew I had to make a decision because at, you know, after four years or so of that one, I was extremely tired. Right. And so something was going, you know, you can only burn the candle at both ends or so for so long as they say. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the next step for me to keep maximizing my potential was going to be letting go of the corporate job to give myself just the time and the space to really put all of my energy into triathlon and training. So, um, you know, as after a few seasons too, I had taken on a couple athletes and we felt that that was going really well and I was really enjoying the coaching. So that was a big part of it too. You know, I, I wanted to make sure I was actually going to like that side of it. I, you know, left the safety and security net of, of the, corporate life. So we, uh, yeah, it was, I want to say January 1st, 2014, I packed everything up into my car and I had moved south to Charlottesville to give it a go. And, you know, it did, it required kind of piecing income from a lot of different places. I was 
nannying for a little bit in Charlottesville because I only had, you know, less than a handful of athletes at that point. We hadn't really advertised. I was coaching full time yet. And, Mm -hmm. um, I was doing some contract work for race event corporations. So, you know, in the first year or so, even though I was quote free of corporate life, I still was by no means a hundred percent, you know, working on my own and triathlon. I was still was kind of at the mercy of some of those side jobs that I was trying to balance. But so it was probably more of a phasing out type of thing than people might realize or people might think it is. And um, that, you know, just gave me the ability to really make sure things were working before I cut too many ties and really left myself out there. Because, you know, the flip side of it is, you don't want to leave a full time job and then end up eating, you know, crappy foods and not being able to support yourself. And that's just that's not going to work well for triathlon career anyway, Mm -mm. either. So you have to be careful with that. Yeah, sounds like you were in a bit of a bind there in 2014 or end of 2013 there. Did you find that decision to be difficult leaving a workplace AOL that you enjoyed the coworkers, enjoyed the job? Was it, I know you put a lot of time, thought into it, mapped out the move and everything. So was the move easier than you thought in a way, or was it real difficult to leave behind that security? It was definitely easier than I thought. And I think that helped me no, I, I just felt like that was something I needed to try. Otherwise it was gonna, you know, be burning this kind of hole of regret in my brain for forever. So that, that definitely put me at peace. And quite honestly, I had an amazing support group of friends and family. And while, you know, my parents really weren't a hundred (laughs) percent certain of what exactly I was doing, you know, Um, uh, and even my coworkers and stuff, you know, I mean, no one really could grasp the how I'm going to make it work as a professional athlete type of thing. But they all were so supportive of it. And, you know, the fact that I had an environment where people were saying, if this fails, we will help you was, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was something I, I needed at that point. And luckily, I didn't really have to go back, you know, to anyone. But I think just knowing that I had their support made me also even believe further that I was doing the right thing by, by following this. Sure. How long have you been with Hillary? Now we're coming up on eight years now. Okay. Yeah. And how many athletes do you coach now? You started off real small there when you moved. What's it blossomed into? Yeah. So I, I usually keep it around, um, 20 to 25, depending on, how much I can handle with my own racing plans and training and stuff. Um, I like to be super hands-on with my athletes and talk to them every day if they're willing to talk to me every day, you know, albeit (laughs) virtually with email and and text and stuff like that. But that's given that I am still prioritizing racing and training. That's about what I enjoy being able to handle. That still gives me a little bit of balance. (laughs) Absolutely. And I, I want to transition now into your FKT Vermont Long Trail. I understand you saw a video or a documentary finding traction that got the gears moving in this direction on what you could do with Vermont Long Trail. Tell us listeners, tell me and the listeners what uh, finding traction is and how that got you thinking about Vermont Long Trail FKT. Yeah, so 
Nikki Kimball, who held the previous women's FKT on the long trail um, for supported attempts, she in 2012 had during her run made a documentary called Finding Traction that's now on Netflix and Amazon Prime and all those sorts of places. So people should definitely watch it. And that was, you know, the first time that I really had insight into what an FKT attempt would look like, um, what it meant to be doing that kind of day over day for multiple, multiple days. I had prior to that, you know, living near the Appalachian Trail, I had definitely known of things like speed records. That was kind of what I always called it was a speed record, you know, before FKT became the popular term. And so you would hear about these speed records being set on the AT and uh, Jennifer Farr Davis just having uh, a few years earlier than that set the overall speed record for men and women on the Appalachian Trail. I had all of those things kind of jumbled in my head and then finding traction really gave me insight into it. And quite honestly, it also opened up my eyes that these things can happen on things that aren't the Appalachian Trail because I do think I, if you had asked me at that time, I might have been able to come up with, you know, one or two other trails where maybe people were doing this, but I just hadn't been exposed to it too much at that point. And so her um, documentary really just, uh, it made me think like, wow, this is something, this is like super cool. And definitely a part of me at that point was thinking that I could be good at something like that because I had recognized through the years of doing ultras and Ironman and stuff like that, that I probably was never going to set like an Ironman course record for being the speediest person out there or something like that. Mm -hmm. But my strength and durability as an athlete was definitely there. And so doing, finding an event, you know, whether it's a a formally made event or something like a, a FKT where you do it on your own, where it requires day after day of, of that, um, was going to be up my alley. So it all kind of lit the fire though, after I saw finding traction and now I've probably watched it like over 50 times <laughs> <laughs> a weekly viewing of finding yeah. traction. Yeah. <laughs> now there's a ton of logistics that go into an FKT, especially of this magnitude 20 or 273 miles. And I believe it was an ESPN piece on the FKT talking about the logistics of it, getting five, six people to, take that amount of work off to get away from their families or bring them their families with them. How was it to get the support system there? Was it pretty tough scheduling all that, getting people on the, uh, on the same schedule there, marking off the calendar, getting five, six days of yeah. a committed crew with you? Yeah. I think that is one of the biggest hurdles, uh, when you're looking at something like this. Um, you know, and I would guess that, quite honestly, I probably had it easier than a lot of people would because I am lucky that a lot of my friends are also professional athletes or have more flexible schedules with what they do because of competing and stuff like that. So if anything, I felt like I had a big community I could cast a net into of people who had the ability to potentially join for a week to 10 days on the trail. Right. So, Mm -hmm. but it still, it was, I mean, You know, the other side of that, I guess, is that I'm 33. And so a lot of my friends are starting families and have young children and um, life isn't as flexible as it probably could have been if I wanted to do it, you know, 10 years ago or something like that. But um, it was 
a lot to plan on all levels. And a lot of the crew kind of comes from too. It's not just a matter of finding anyone. It's finding the right people and making sure I was really, you know, I, for sure, everyone on the crew was asked to be on the crew for a particular reason. Um, cause mm-hmm. they, I felt had some strengths that would be a, a huge asset to the team overall. And so you don't want to just have, you know, 10 random people show up and give them jobs because it ends up being a lot harder than just executing, you know, the task at hand. Um, it's a lot more moral support and just people who have known me to be able to make decisions for me. And I, more importantly, that I would trust to make decisions for me when it came to that. Trust that they have to be all into this attempt too. knowing they, when, yeah, when you're yeah. arriving, where splits, where to be with food and drink and dry clothes and everything. So I read about the binder too, that you ended up calling the Bible that everyone yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely have saved one of those. I thought I like misplaced it the other day. I was like, Oh no, where is it? Cause I want to keep that forever. But yeah. <laughs> and I would say too, you know, nothing was ever super dangerous or anything like that on the trail, but there certainly were moments where safety was, you know, a part of the decision-making. And again, I think there's a, you want to make sure you have a crew that's comfortable and they know your strengths and the ability to push you through things rather than be like, Oh, this feels unsafe. We need to stop, you know? So that was, that was very important to me in the whole thing. And your training prep for this FKT attempt, I read too, that you spent $6,000 on Airbnb rentals. Is that accurate? So not just the Airbnb rentals alone, um, but that was honestly a major portion of it because, you know, I think you could have definitely done it cheaper um, (laughs) if you like kind of rented a room or something like that. Um, I I have a dog (laughs) and she's a rescue dog. And so she, you know, isn't, it's not super easy to just travel and throw her anywhere. You know, like I, I just needed kind of my own rental type of place. Um, and then, so that was like one caveat to where I was trying to find rentals when I was training up in Vermont for two months prior. And, um, also I was very picky about the location of where I was renting because I could have found a super cheap place anywhere in Vermont, but then I might be driving hours to go see some of the trail sections and things like that. Like I needed, you know, I was training so much as it was, I really needed to basically be living as close as I could to the long trail. And so that, you know, in Vermont, once you get outside of a few cities, like (laughs) there's not a lot of properties up there, let alone rental properties and things like that. So, um, you know, all of those things made it pretty expensive. Um, you know, it's definitely over 2000, I want to say close to 2,500 each for, you know, a month to stay up there. And, you know, again, I realized that's, you know, what I was trying to balance and I just made the decision that it would be worth it. So, um, and then again, like when I was actually running the trail, we had to have separate locations for people to be in my crew to be staying along the way and then staying at the end and all of those things. And that definitely adds up very quickly. (laughs) Did you have a set block of training for Vermont long trail? And how long was it? I did. So I made the decision to actually race an iron distance race um, at the end of April. And 
I made that decision because I knew the, the long trail project was going to be a pretty expensive investment. Uh-huh. And I thought I could squeeze out this one race and, you know, make a chunk of money to put towards it. And luckily I was, I was right on that hunch. And so that did work out. I was second at challenge Taiwan at the end of April. And so it was after that, I think I took about 10 days probably to recover from the iron distance and then really transitioned mid-May um, through the end of July to long trail specific training. Okay. Now, five days, two hours on this trail. I saw some video clips from the run, from the hike, whatever you <laughs> may call it, the FKT yeah. attempt here, and just some vicious rain to start off and a really wet attempt at this trail. Were you concerned when you were looking at weather reports going into the race? Because I know as runners, we tend to just really get in tune to the weather and keep like checking the forecast and whatnot. Were you trying not to let weather get into your mind there at the start? I definitely was just compartmentalizing as much as I could. You know, I, I knew it was going to be a factor and I knew what the weather reports were saying, but I also knew I had that window of time where my crew was coming in to pull this thing off and we didn't have, uh, you know, much of a window or a cushion on either side. So one of the the top things people will tell you about FKTs is to be flexible on your start date because of things like weather and things like that. And I just, I, you know, I, I really didn't have that option, unfortunately, with the way I was going about it. And so I, yeah, I just put it out of my mind and I had to trust that regardless of the weather, we were going to be able to pull it off. And it was, I, I could tell the day before that, you know, some people were getting texts or like calls from other friends we had kind of in Vermont who knew more about the weather and, and things. And I could see in their faces, <laughs> the person on the other line was like, are you sure you want to be starting tomorrow? Because the weather is not looking good, you know, and it's yeah, supposed yeah. to be really wet. And so, but my, again, my crew did a great job of <laughs> pretending as best they could that that wasn't being, you know, said out loud. So we all just were like, we're doing it. We're doing it in the rain. We're doing it in the sunshine. We're doing it however it's going to work out. And so it, you know, luckily it did work out, but it was quite wet. Um, you know, like the rain was coming down a lot that first day, especially. And then because of that system that had moved through the whole trail was pretty wet and muddy, the wettest and the muddiest I had seen it despite being up there all summer. Yeah. And your race report, I remember reading you had a close call on day one or day two. Was it you had a fall, got stuck for a bit and it was because (laughs) of the slippery conditions there, the wet conditions. Yeah, that was, that was day one. And so, and it was, it was like, wow, this is, the rain changes the trail then you know from what i was kind of accustomed to to seeing out there and one of the spots i went to put my pole in was just completely like it was it was fake it wasn't really hard ground at all it was just this soft mush and my pole went through and then my whole entire arm followed and i literally was like stuck upside down i was like oh my gosh this is <laughs> much too early in the run for this to be happening <laughs> you had a crew member there with you right I did. Yeah. So I'm sure it was, you know, comical for her, but (laughs) when you were training on the trail in the months prior, was it pretty dry out there the entire time? It was for the most part, I think, and everyone, the locals were all saying it was, 
a pretty great, you know, summer up there. And, um, in general, I think it was one of the drier years up till that point, at least. (laughs) Um, and even in June when I was there, it was dry, but it, it was cold for sure. You know, I had made the point to kind of stay in Southern Vermont for June and then in July move up to Stowe and see more of the Northern parts because it, and that was, I needed to do that for sure because the, the Northern sections really didn't warm up, um, until kind of mid to late June. Okay. Now when people see five days, two hours on a trail and about 55 miles a day, 273 miles in five days, the sleep schedule has to come into play here in terms of yeah. how did, uh, what was Alyssa's sleep schedule like? And again, I encourage all listeners to read the race report on your blog, but just tell us here um, how you went about sleep and different chunks of napping and here and there. Yeah, my plan was to try to be moving for about 20 hours a day and then have a four hour period for, uh, you know, sleep, um, whether or not I could maximize that four hours or not was up to me, but that was the ultimate goal. Right. And so that broke that we kept that pretty well the first three nights. Um, and then after that, things got a little funny and it was partly because I had slowed down off of my pace projections. Right. So then it was up to the crew to decide, for day four, would we try to find somewhere on the trail to sleep or would we cut day four a little bit shorter so that I could sleep earlier at a road crossing, um, which is what we, we did decide to do um, for the sleep to the first night was on the trail. The second night was in the trunk of my FJ cruiser on, on, in the parking lot. Um, the third night we did, you're allowed to leave the trail as long as you return to that exact point. So we okay. did go to a hotel for that um, that third night of sleep, which was great. Having a bed was was really helpful. And then I was back in the trunk of my car for the fourth. And then the so at that point, I basically had about sixteen hours of of sleep total through those four days. And we were going to do one big push to the finish from there. And that broke down because that fourth day was shorter mileage wise. That meant I was going to have to do about 72 miles, I think, um, for day five. And so that, you know, on paper, we were like, okay, we can do this. And we actually started that chunk of time at, at midnight because we had realized too, that I was doing much better getting sleep earlier and then waking up and hiking through sunrise rather than trying to like push through the dark night after sunset. I think, um, the sun going down just mentally and then having to keep hiking into darkness for hours is really, really hard mentally when you're that tired. So we kind of swapped it around so that we got up at midnight and then started that final push into the sunrise and, and things were going really well. But, you know, sleep deprivation is the one thing I really didn't have a ton of experience with going into this at all minus you know maybe the the 100 mile races I had done before um and even those weren't you know nearly to the extent that this was day over day and so it really started to hit me in that fifth day and the lack of sleep it was crazy I mean no amount of caffeine no amount of 
anything, like food, nothing was changing the fact that I could just, all my body wanted to do was sleep. Um, there was no way around that. And, you know, looking back on it now, I think I would like to think that when I get back into that place, it's like more expected and maybe I could find my way around it a little bit further, but it was just something I had never experienced before. And it was really, really difficult. And so I was starting to just get so nervous because I knew how much I still had to go ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And especially when we had about 50K left to go and I was thinking of that and then I was just feeling how like overwhelming that sense that all I wanted was sleep was. Um, that was, that was so then I decided to try bargaining with my crew <laughs> and to their credit, they were, I mean, they were not backing down much at all. And finally I bargained with them that I could get an hour of sleep at a shelter at the top of the next climb, basically. And they would hike in my, my sleeping bag for me in their pack so that I could sleep in, in, um, that shelter with just a sleeping bag on like the wood platform. And <laughs> it was crazy, you know, again, like how many opportunities you really have to experiment to see what little naps and things could do. But I can definitely see where, you know, maybe trying to have some, you know, maybe if I broke it down into three 20 minute naps along that way, would that have been better than one big hour? Because after the hour, I definitely bounced back for a little bit. And, but then it it was, it just hit me again, like a ton of bricks a little bit later. So I don't know if you can kind of manage those highs and lows and make them a little bit smaller by using some smaller naps and things like that. But it was, that was, that was definitely intense. The the lack of sleep was the hardest thing. And then I inadvertently got one more nap with about like eight miles to go, I guess. So yes, um, I, I was in a, a pretty tough spot. And one of the the reasons was again, the trail was so muddy. And so every single step, my shoe was getting sucked into the mud and I was having to pull it out and it was just so painful. And then one of my, the times I pulled my, my foot out, it really just kind of, I guess, I think just ruptured this huge blister I had on my foot. And I was just like, it just exploded. Yeah. (laughs) I was just done. I felt it. And I was like, I, 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 I'm done. Like this needs to, we need to fix this if we expect me to go any further. So we sat down on, I had two crew members with me and they were like, okay, put your foot up. We'll redo the blisters, get you in some dry socks. You know, we'll, we got to keep going. So this is what we'll do. And when I sat down and put my foot up so they could work on it, I laid back into this fern bush and it felt like, I may have well like laid back onto this bed of clouds. It felt so <laughs> soft and it was so nice. And I do actually have a memory of being like, oh, this is so nice. I'm just going to close my eyes. And then the next thing I remember is like a headlamp in my face and they're shaking me and they're like, wake up. And I, I had no idea where I was, what I was doing. And then I finally was like, oh my gosh, am I done? Like, I thought I had finished. I thought I had, you know, done it. And they're like, no, you have to get up. We still have eight miles to go. Like <laughs> the sun will be up soon, but you'll be fine. And I was like, oh no, you know, we're still not there. Um, but that was my last like little 15 minute or so nap. I think I managed to get out there on the trail. Yeah. That was one of the highlights I took from the blog post that I, <laughs> I wrote in the Google doc here. You said, as I put my feet up into Matt's lap, I leaned back into a fern bush, realized yeah. how nice it felt. And there's a picture to accommodate the, the explanation there. And it's, Oh yeah. <laughs> Every good crew member will also be taking photos of that moment because I, it's just so funny. I mean, one, I look like I'm, 
maybe just stumbled across a person like dead in a fern bush, you know, uh, <laughs> I like am not looking too great at that point, but I guess that's to be expected after, after almost 273. Oh miles. yeah. Were you, okay. were you still well on pace at that point with eight to go? I was, I was good on pace in terms of breaking the record. I had, I had definitely fallen off of kind of, you know, we had adjusted goals as I was going and then, probably prior to that, the, I was really hoping to just break five days. And, um, that was in question while I was out on that section. And I had, I just moved too slowly during that section. I was probably going like a mile and a half an hour for a little bit during that when things were really rough. So, and again, it, it was just that hiking through the night is so tough mentally. Um, you know, that can really, really break you. Mm -hmm. So once, I felt like the sun was coming up for that, that final time. And then I was kind of like, Oh, you know, I am going to make it like the world is going to keep spinning. So, um, that, that always helps. <laughs> you said earlier that no amount of caffeine, no food that you put in your body, um, could keep you from craving sleep, any amount of caffeine. And I, I pulled the types of food you ate from this blog post too. And this is just, a. I'll name about seven here. You had Pop-Tarts, you had Red Bull, Taco Bell, Slim Jim, Swedish Fish, Tater Tots, ice cream, fried chicken. Is this all sitting well while you're running and hiking? <laughs> it was. I mean, I, you know, I had one stomach issue on, I guess it was, it might have been the second day. Um, and, or no, I think it was the end of the first day. And it was just, it was ensure that didn't sit well on that first day. And after that, I was like, no more insure. And I was like, I can't even look at it, but everything else, you know, and I've always had a pretty good stomach to be able to handle a lot of foods while training and racing and things like that. And I think it was like, I was, I was long trail training my stomach before I even knew that I was, I think. Yeah. Well, the headline that caught my attention, of course, is the runner's world one that just came out last week. This woman down Taco Bell to crush a 273 mile record from Jenny McCoy of Runner's World. Of course, I'm going to click that. I've had my fair share of Taco Bell in my yeah. lifetime. I'm going to see what's going on. What did what did this woman do? And then, yeah, I uh, think people were probably a little disappointed to find out that I didn't have like ex exclusively Taco Bell or something like that. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't able to pull that off. That quesadilla though on day five, the last day of the attempt you describe it kind of like manna from heaven. Can you describe that Taco Bell situation? Yeah. I mean, and it really is. So one of those things I really like, and we knew at some point, you know, eating was a, such a top priority through the whole thing. Cause if I wasn't eating, I wasn't going to go very far. And so one of the documents in that binder that was so important was this list of foods that I said I would basically eat under any circumstances. So you know, try these when things are really tough, that kind of thing. And on that list is a Taco Bell quesadilla. And so there's not a lot of Taco Bells in Vermont. Like I want to say there's really only like two anyway. And one of them happens to be um, just off the trail in, in Bennington, I believe. And so um, for that last kind of push where I was talking about how sleep deprived I was and things were just feeling awful, uh, my crew was like, okay, we're going <laughs> to go to Taco Bell and get her that quesadilla. And I was in the middle of this big kind of 25 mile section. And so crew had started hiking in from the end point thinking they would meet us, you know, within, by the timing, they thought they might go five miles at the most or something like that. And 
it turned out I had been moving so slow and there was no signal to get word to them how slowly I was moving. And they just kept hiking in and hiking in expecting to meet us. They ended up going almost like 10 miles, I think, before <laughs> they actually did intercept us. So then, of course, they also had to get themselves out, too. So it ended up being this, like, epic 20-mile night hike for them, too. And, uh, you know, again, on day, almost day five of the whole thing, when the crew was just as exhausted, for sure, as I was, that was definitely a testament to the friends I have. <laughs> Quite incredible what the one quesadilla, was it just one quesadilla there? It was, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was probably all we had time for. I think we were yeah. all starting to worry too <laughs> about <laughs> keeping me moving. So it was good we only had, we, I only stopped for the one. At one point you said you popped in your iPod, help pass the miles. What are you listening to there? Is it music? Is it podcasts? And what, what kind, what genre? It was, this is so embarrassing. It was all Taylor Swift yeah. because I had an iPod shuffle and I'm, technologically fairly challenged with things sometimes and I couldn't figure out how to get any more music onto the shuffle in time and so I only had her not even her most recent album like one of her older albums um on there and it was just playing on repeat and it honestly that was fine (laughs) I was okay with that do you remember how many miles you had Taylor Swift going So I had headphones in for one section that was probably about six miles. And then one of the other nights where right before we ended up sleeping in that hotel, um, my crew, uh, my friend Carly had, she pulled out Taylor Swift because she just knew. So she put on her Taylor Swift repertoire on repeat (laughs) and that was playing just over and over through her phone for, I mean, that was probably closer to like, I mean, at least two hours, if not longer. But you know what ended up, we we had to turn it off because one of the Taylor Swift songs that came on was a song called Out of the Woods. And <laughs> the lyrics of that, she just kept, keeps repeating, like, are we out of the woods? Are we out of the woods? Oh, and yeah. I, I heard that song and it played through because we had it all on a repeat. You know, after the second or third time I heard that, I was like, I think I turned around to them and I said, I'm having a little bit of a mental breakdown. <laughs> and I just sat down. And the next day I said, I was like, that song could not have come at a worse time. And Carly was just like, oh my gosh, I knew. So she like pulled it out of, out of her uh, music library for any future <laughs> listening that we had, because it was just, you know, the irony was definitely there, but um, it was pretty funny now looking back at that. Probably never listened to that song again. So. No, <laughs> not without Effect thinking of the long trail at least. So. Oh yeah, yeah. You saw your parents on day four. That had to give you a good boost, right? Yeah, it was really cool to see them. We had decided that they wouldn't come for the whole thing um, because as parents do, they they worry about the safety of their children. And so, you know, I wanted to give my crew a couple days to get up and rolling and get in the groove and figure out how they would be working with each other before having my parents come in and them having to make sure they were also keeping any of my parents' worries or fears at bay. Um, So they came just about halfway through kind of, um, and they, it was great to see them because at that point, I think we all felt good about what, like my odds of keeping on a record breaking pace and I was handling things as well as could be expected. So that I think was really fun for them to see and just to, I think for them to see in person, cause they knew how much I had invested of myself and time and energy into this project. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was definitely meaningful that they 
came out and, and helped out for the last few days. Sure. So you finish five days, two hours, 37 minutes, touch the sign, immediate relief, or are you thinking about the hike out already? Because I got a little paragraph here from the race report too about how brutal the hike out from the, was it the Pine Cobble Trail? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. a fun fact for, for anyone listening who doesn't know, the, the long trail ends at that Massachusetts border and then, you know, the... Um, the AT continues down and then it's just there, you know, it's not like, Oh, the parking lot's this way from there. It's another four miles (laughs) down this, you know, Ridge. And that was one of the things I hadn't taken a look at in the, the months prior while I was up there, because I was like, whatever, if we get to the end, we'll figure it out at that point. And so we kind of blindly picked our way out and it was, not our best pick the pine cobble trail is very technical and it you know I knew it was coming and I was just in such a state of like being tired and and needing to like lay down for a while as it was and so it was it was certainly relief and it was really really cool at the end but I was also definitely like oh no now I have to get myself out of here And, you know, it involved some piggyback rides, it involved some very sympathetic friends who were, you know, basically moving a mile an hour with me as I was trying my best, but I was, I was in a rough spot, my body and my, my mind had kind of shut off at that point, I think, had there been like, any other option to kind of lay in a hammock for a while and deal with that later, I probably would have though, I think the smart thing was getting out as soon as I could. It just, it took a long time. It took like four hours to get out. <laughs> Jeez. So hike out was brutal. What was the toughest part of the trail itself? Would you say, was there a standout portion of the trail that just really brutalized you? There. So the, the wilderness areas, you know, in the kind of middle section around Lincoln gap and Brandon gap, they are just a little less maintained because they are wilderness areas. And so the Green Mountain Club has different rules for how they can kind of keep them clear of blowdowns and and things like that. So Mm -hmm. because of that and the nature of where that trail is, it's just more rugged there. And that was pretty, that was actually surprisingly harder for me than some of the, what people might think was like, the most challenging terrain kind of up in the Northern section where you're going over Mount Mansfield and Camel's Hump and just a lot of vertical climbing, you know, that's all really, really well-maintained trails for the most part. It's like pretty well-traveled. Um, and so while that required, you know, a lot of strength and technical skills, it was kind of just that the rugged trail in that middle section that really, I think was what wore me out. Um, you know, during, during the actual attempt. Okay. Now I interviewed Dina Castor back in October. She's got a book out now, let your mind run talking about staying optimistic, really training the mind with endurance feats with running. And so I thought about this while reading some of your reports, reading articles, features on this attempt. Uh, how, how much does mental training go into your buildup for attempts like these and different Ironmans and races? How much is, the mental aspect of your approach and your athlete life, how high priority is that for you? It's, I mean, it's a top priority for sure with every goal or race or whatever that I'm setting. Um, 
the, the, if you train yourself to be a hundred percent confident in the work you've done come the day that you're towing the start line, then the physical prep has probably taken care of itself in doing that. And so, you know, this was definitely no different where again, even with imminent like major rainstorms and thunderstorms on the, the, the forecast, I felt a hundred percent confident that I had done everything I possibly could have to get myself ready to take on the long trail before mm-hmm. we started. And so to do that though, it required, you know, a boatload of training and really hard stuff to get myself to that point. But if you can get yourself, you know, and sometimes it, it just requires sitting down with your coach or if your self coach, just really forcing yourself to sit down for a while and write out the, the things that are going to make you sell, make you feel a hundred percent confident when you're on the start line. And so for me, that was things just like having seen as much of the trail as I could having, you know, done a couple wacky training days where we tried to get, you know, 8,000 feet of climbing and then do some more running in the evening and things that I felt were just going to really make me feel like if I did these, there's, there's no way I could do more (laughs) to have there, you know? And so if you get yourself to that point, whether or not you succeed or fail, then it's kind of like, well, you, you really do know you tried your best in all facets. And then while you're actually racing, it's inevitable that doubts are going to creep in. Like, even if you get to the start line, knowing you did everything you could, you're still going to have low moments of doubt, but you can always, I think, more easily return to that positive place because you're, you've continually trained your mind to know that you've done a hundred percent. And so just getting back into that positivity after a low happens, I think a little bit more quickly um, and a little bit more easily. Cause it's a skill. It's just like anything physical, you have to practice doing that. And oh, so, yeah. you know, doing that in training, doing that through racing a bunch, um, it's, it's huge. And the mind is, is just so big a part of endurance sports that you have to work on that skill. Otherwise you won't be successful. Absolutely. On September 5th, you posted on your blog and said, this is a quote from it. It's going to take a while for me to get the yards needed in the pool. So I'm competitive again. It's going to take a while to build my endurance on the bike. And just this week, is when it has stopped feeling like someone is hitting me with a hammer in the knees when I run. So there's plenty of work to be done there. How long was that recovery process after completing this trail in five days, two hours, 37 minutes, just again, physically detrimental. I know the sleep was still, you felt like you were on extreme jet lag. Um, Give us a little insight on that recovery post FKT. Yeah, it's, you know, unfortunate that there is like a small sample size of people doing, you know, super like lengthy endurance events, because I would love if someone could study some of this stuff. I think it's it's pretty interesting to see what the body is doing when it's under that kind of stress. And so physically, you know, even though I wasn't running my fastest pace for five days and two hours, uh, it just physically absolutely took a toll like that time on my feet. So, um, people who have done races are probably familiar with 
the phenomenon of getting cankles afterwards, right? And so mm-hmm. you need to keep moving and things like that um, to kind of keep the blood flowing and everything moving in the days after your event. And so this was, sorry, my dog's getting a little excited about, about the talk of cankles. Um, doing this was like, you know, a normal endurance event, but just on steroids. And so, you know, experiencing cankles was like that times 10. (laughs) And so, you know, for a week afterwards, it was like my toes were so swollen that like, I barely even thought they were my feet, you know? Um, just all of, you know, after a, a marathon, you might lose toenails and I, and my toenails were just like in, in really bad shape. And I had actually like blisters under some of them. And so one of, one of those had gotten infected and that was super painful. Um, and my joints did, they just felt like they were (laughs) just really beaten up, um, from, you know, just all of the miles in, in that short of time frame. And so I think, you know, physically it wasn't like super surprising either though, because of course, you know, it was going to be way worse than anything I had experienced before because it was so different. Right. And so, so that was just kind of a trip to go through. And I think part of it was like, as you mentioned, I, I really struggled getting back into a normal sleep pattern after that. And so, you know, it wasn't until, mid-October where I was finally sleeping well again and I think sleep is just such a huge part of recovery that you know my body was trying to recover but until I could give it any sort of just normal sleep pattern to allow it to do its thing overnight Mm -hmm. it was really stalling the physical side of things and so those those definitely went hand in hand and I think a lot of it was like stress hormones and stuff um and I, I say that just because in the the week, especially afterwards, I was having like these nightmares that I was still on the trail and they were as clear as day that I was in the section of trail trying to get to the finish. And even I would wake up and know I'm awake in an apartment and okay. And I, I was like hallucinating. Like all I could see was the trail. I mean, it was wild. And I just, I think that must have been like a, a hormonal and stress type of response that my body had had. Um, and I, I didn't see that coming because this was a project I had taken because I really wanted to do it. And for the, you know, I really enjoyed the whole process of it. I was out there because I wanted to do it. So I was surprised that mentally I would still show so many signs of stress in the days afterwards. I thought I'd be like, having happy dreams and just wanting to sleep for a few days. You know, <laughs> that's like all I wanted to do. And I, I couldn't do it. So that was, that was really tough. But um, yeah, I would love to talk to some other people who have done this sort of thing and see how common that is. Um, Cause that was, that was very unexpected. Yeah. And talk about how it frightened you, those hallucinations, you poster or post attempt there. And that's just crazy. That's yeah. Stuff you just can't really plan for how those are going to come up post attempt there. Um, I, I saw too that uh, not only you mentioned the blisters too, and the feet care that you had to go through post attempt too. was there uh, just weeks on end after where you were still getting four or five hours of sleep or were you trying to trying to get eight hours of sleep every night there? Was it just borderline impossible? 
Yeah, I was I was trying to get back to a normal like eight, you know, even seven would have been great or oh, something yeah. at that point. Um, and it was, it was just, it felt like jet lag where, you know, I would get super tired and fall asleep for like two or three hours and then just be up wide awake. Um, and I ended up going to, you know, one of my things was like, I could go to a doctor and have them run a bunch of tests and they're probably come back and say like, yeah, things don't look quite right because you ran 273 miles in five (laughs) days and two hours. Right. So I knew like I had done something to my body and I just felt like rather than going to like investigate it and have doctors potentially want to like throw drugs at it or anything like that to make it more normal. I just wanted to kind of wait it out because I I knew what I, you know, it wasn't like I was experiencing all these things out of the blue or anything like that. I wasn't sick per se. Mm -hmm. Right. So I just had to wait it out and I am a, I believe acupuncture works for various things. And so after about six weeks or so of not having regular sleep, um, I was ready to try anything. And I was like, you know, actually I should just try some acupuncture because it's worked for some things in the past. And I did, I did two or three weeks of kind of three sessions a week with acupuncture. And, um, you know, whether it was, I really wanted it to work or whether it was that or whatever, uh, that really helped turn things around and get me back into like a normal, normal sleeping pattern. Have you raced since? I have, um, I did a two day row gaining event, which is kind of like, uh, orienteering adventure race on foot. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't want to make formal racing plans that boxed me into like having to get back to fitness if I wasn't quite ready mentally to be doing that yet this fall. And so I picked up this like orienteering skill. I was like, well, this Mm. sounds fun. And you know, now that I've been doing these things more on trails, there's just some other FKTs and even just like hikes and stuff I want to do, but it would require a little bit of orienteering knowledge and knowing how to use a compass quite honestly. So I had a little bit of time when I wasn't training as, as heavily this fall. And I joined a local orienteering club and they have these like O meets or something, O events. I don't even, still don't even, I'm not entirely sure what they're called on weekends. And the one here at Quantico is great. And I mean, literally every weekend in the fall, basically they would have an event and they taught beginners and you could just show up. And it's, it's, it was really, really nice for that recovery time period for me because it allowed me to be outside. I could take my dog. Um, I was learning a new skill I was like, they are a competitive thing, but I had no idea what I was competitive or like, I had no idea what I was doing. So I wasn't really felt like I needed to compete, you know, like I'm, I definitely am a competitive person. So there was a part of me that was, I wanted to learn it fast and I wanted to, I want to get better and I still do, but that wasn't like my number one priority. And so it's, you know, something I could do also with one of my best friends and she's, you know, pregnant. So she wasn't moving too fast at anything either during the (laughs) the fall. So we could do it together and hike in the woods for like three hours and learn orienteering. And so I found a two day orienteering race um, called the Stockville put on uh, by Rootstock Racing up in Pennsylvania. And it was, it was really fun because again, it was a weekend in the woods. You know, I definitely covered a lot of miles to be honest on my feet and stuff, but (laughs) It was, you know, just 
it wasn't racing in the sense of what I had been doing for the past through, you know, a few seasons. And so it, it just mentally was really what I wanted to be doing through the recovery. And while I kind of figured out like, you know, what would be next and, um, and that sort of thing. Sure. The Stockville, you wrote about that too on your website, correct? I did. Yeah. Okay. I try, I'm still, I know blogging has gone away a little bit, but I still blog, you know, I try to every couple of weeks or so. Um, on my website. Yeah. You told runner's world that you'd like to do the Vermont long trail self-supported at some point. Now, as of today, is that sound insane to you? I asked that question because I know how important your crew and support was during, uh, the FKT. So self-supported, that's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, that would be a whole other beast. Right. And so, it was definitely, you know, I needed my crew out there to, for success in, in this one for sure. Um, but I also don't want to have to wait, you know, every few years to have to like wait patiently to be like, okay, I need to ask them for something again to, to come out and help me for another adventure. You know, in the meantime, I, I think self-supported is a great option where it doesn't, you don't need as many people obviously to help you do it. Um, and so also while I was in Vermont training, I, it was really fun because a lot of people were through hiking while I was out there running the trails and scouting things out. So I would meet some of the through hikers at one point And then, you know, a couple of days later they would get a little bit further and I would be on the new section training on that. And so I got to talk to them several times and to know some of them and follow through their through hiking journeys and things like that. And I think there's something really special about, through hiking and self-supported styles of FKTs and doing that on your own. I think it's incredibly difficult. Um, and it's, it, you know, again, it's like just this whole other skill set. I, you know, it's all, it's some different gear and things like that. And it's a, certainly another mental challenge if to see if I could handle that kind of thing on, on my own. So it's very intriguing to me um, in terms of where that will ultimately fit, like in terms of scheduling with, with, uh, my plans. I, I'm not sure yet, but I, you know, and I do, I, I'd love to return to the long trail. So I think that's definitely on the list of, of to do's. Okay. Any other ultra marathons on the bucket list? I know you said to the Barkley marathons notorious race out there in, in Tennessee put on by Laz. And yeah. I know that. You know, yeah. long trail finishers have like a pretty good finishing rate actually at the Barkley. Okay. Um, and so, and you know, in the recent years as Barkley has gotten more attention and women have been kind of, there's been a resurgence to get a woman to finish that race. I think that's super inspiring to see what has been going on the past few years. And, uh, you know, again, it's like, if you look at it on paper and people who have done the long trail are people that are pretty good Barkley people like maybe there's a niche there, you know? So, oh, yeah. um, that's a, a whole thing to even try and get into the race itself. But, um, so again, who knows if and when that would ever fit in, but it would be cool to, to be a part of that at some point for sure. Oh yeah. So to make it an official fastest known time FKT, we've been saying that acronym a lot in this conversation, fastest known time. So part of the process is writing the trip report and then end-to-end certification from the Green Mountain Club. Uh, what all goes into making it an official FKT? Yeah, so 
the guys over at fastestknowntime.com. Um, and again, have everything has kind of really taken off in the past few years as FKTs have become more of a, a popular thing to do and more of a focus on them. And at this point, you know, they are doing their absolute best to be able to take a look at something and say that this, you know, has enough of credibility, you know, with some technology and uh, the race report and things like the trip report that they write and things like that to then they kind of, you know, certify it as best they can to say that this is the new record. Um, and they, again, they're doing a really, really great job. I think that technology has made it a little bit easier because you, you can have things like I had a spot tracker out there, you know, someone was always who was with me was wearing a Garmin that was on to be recording how fast we were going and where we were and things like that. So we were trying to take pictures with timestamps and things like that. So it's definitely the responsibility of the athlete taking on the FKT to be collecting their records as best they can. Mm -hmm. The trails also have like trail logs and stuff along the way. And so we definitely made it a priority to be signing in on those with the correct timestamps and things like that. Just to give ourselves kind of more credibility if it was ever called into question. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's kind of where it stands in terms of officially. And then the green mountain club does, they, you know, ask for a trip report and some other information again, you know, I think it's probably pretty clear when someone's, you know, done it or not, uh, <laughs> made it yeah. the whole way, you know? Um, and so it, it, but it is, it, it relies a lot on credibility in the honor system and, uh, people really, you know, telling the truth and, and that sort of thing at this point. Oh yeah. The honesty of it all. I know there right. was a system to that. Keeping it honest indeed. Definitely. And on the home stretch here, I'll let you go in just a bit. I want to know about smash fest queen. One of your sponsors, tell me about smash fest queen. Yeah, so Smash Fest Queen has was founded by my coach Hillary Biscay uh, and her business partner Michelle Landry, and this was back in probably around 2010, I'm guessing. That was their initial kind of concept, maybe even a little earlier, where you know Hillary was racing professionally at Ironman, and she was taking a look at some of the options for what like women could be wearing while they were racing, and it was that era where things were all like black and maybe purple. If you were a woman, you could get something purple. Mm. And it was like basically same cut, same sizing as the men's stuff. Uh, we just would have like a bra built in maybe to our top or something like that. Yeah. And so they were like, you know what, let's like make some cooler stuff for women to be wearing that they want to be wearing. And when you, you know, have stuff that, looks like nicer and fits you better you definitely are you know it, it plays into how you feel on race day and can help you race faster and so I mean over the last few years it's absolutely taken off and smash fest has become this big you know triathlon cycling now they have some running apparel and everything too at smashfestqueen.com you can go and, and check it out it's really cool awesome. um but yeah aside from just what they make the the brand itself um smash fest is a word that hillary would use to coin like her big workouts and stuff it would mm. be a smash fest and so 
over the the last few years, we've built a pretty big community of women that smash fest is, is kind of a mentality and it doesn't have to be something, you know, as epic as the long trail was for me. It can be a big, you know, the longest swim you've ever done on your birthday or something like that. And just setting these big goals and having a community of people around you to support them as support you as you go after them is, is absolutely a, a part of the brand too. Oh yeah. So that's apparel. You're apparel sponsor there. Yes. And a lot of smash fest queen. Yes. How about shoes? What are you wearing for training? What's your go-to racing shoe? Did you switch out a couple, few different pairs during the FKT? Yeah, so I'm, um, Cadence Running Company is a good friend of mine and, and always helps support me. So they're out of Phoenix, actually. And so I'm lucky that, you know, that doesn't, hasn't like tied me down to one brand necessarily, because I do, I like to kind of switch it out at times um, and try a little bit of everything. I think my feet respond pretty good in all sorts of shoes. So it's nice to have those options. And on the long trail for both training and during the FKT, I was wearing the Saucony, is it the Peregrine, I guess is how you say it, Peregrine. Um, And the Ultra, uh, one of the like Lone Peaks, I want to say is what it's called, Mm -hmm. um, for Ultras too. So those were, were my top two shoes. I had five pairs of shoes I was rotating between, uh, with those. And they, they definitely got a good bit of use out there. Um, and for road running again, like I, I like to try a little bit of everything I'm racing in the, the Nike four percents now, but I train a lot in Brooks. So kind of all over the place. Yeah. With shoes. This weekend, uh, half Ironman, right? Yes. So I, I found a little bit of speed still in me since the long trail, which is super exciting. And I've, I've enjoyed the speed workouts. It's such a change of pace from what I was doing earlier in the year. So I actually think I'm, you know, I'm running pretty fast and the biking's coming around pretty well. And so I'm excited to see what I can do speed wise this weekend. Good. And plug your podcast too, Iron Woman podcast. Yeah. So it's a weekly show that I record with a fellow female professional triathlete, Haley Chura. And we talk to usually iron women out there. So another female pro that we're uh, racing with. And sometimes though, like we did interview Jennifer Farr Davis leading up to my run and we'll have some other, we had Jesse Diggins um, and Keegan Randall from the U.S. Women's Olympic cross country skiing team. So we try and just find some really badass women who are you know, making things happen in, in women's sports. And mm-hmm. we talk to them once a week. Sweet. And then where can we follow you on social media? I think across the board I, now I am at Alyssa Gadeski okay. uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I have an athlete page there as well. And then the website too, where I was doing some research, um, give the URL for that too, where we can read some of the blog and just read more about your background career. Yes. Yep. AlyssaGadeski.com. Okay. Sweet. Well, go get them this weekend, Alyssa. Really appreciate the time here. Took a good chunk out of your morning there now into the afternoon, Eastern time. And really appreciate it. Gained a lot from the talk and appreciate the time here on Hooray Run Podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I never get tired of talking about the long trail, so it's always fun for me. So thank you. It is quite the accomplishment and I'm glad I could really dig into it there and listeners will really benefit from that conversation here and how you accomplished it. Good. Five days, two hours, 37 minutes, right? 
Yes. Okay. Yep. Can't forget about those. Down to the minutes. minutes, Down to the minutes. Exactly. Thanks again for listening to Hooray Run Podcast Episode 24. Much appreciation to Alyssa for taking the time out of her Monday to join me on the podcast. Follow her on social media. Go to her website. Read her blog. Hooray Run is on social media. Facebook page. Twitter is at Hooray underscore run. Instagram is Hooray Run. One word. HoorayRun.com. Email the podcast or just Hooray Run in general. HoorayRun at gmail.com. The podcast here, it's on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Tell a friend. Recommend. Leave a review. Spread the word. Thanks as always to Mikey, a.k.a. Meeks Palmer on SoundCloud for the intro-outro beats. Be on the lookout. Dina Caster Facebook book giveaway. Facebook book giveaway later this week. Another one on Instagram. And enjoy December here. Hopefully another pod up in the next week or two.